0: Well, let's go ahead and move on. We're going to be looking at chapter 15 of repentance unto life. We've got five chapters, and we're going to see four things. In chapters 1 and 2, we're going to see the recipients of repentance. In chapter th- or paragraph 3, rather, we're going to see the grace of repentance. Paragraph 4, we're going to see the duty of repentance. And in paragraph Five, we're going to see the provision of repentance. Let's open it up here, chapters 1 and 2, speaking specifically of the recipients of repentance. And we're going to notice in paragraph 1 that it's addressing specifically those who receive, by God's grace, repentance unto life at conversion. It says, some of the elect are converted after their early years, Having lived in the natural state for a time and served various evil desires and pleasures, God gives these repentance to life as part of their effectual calling. Notice that God gives it and it's built into His effectual call of all of those whom He has chosen before the foundation of the world. The general call is that call of the gospel that goes out to all men everywhere. The effectual call is the calling of the gospel whereby God's elect, having their hearts transformed, regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, hear in that call the very Word of God and respond to the authority of God in repentance and faith to the gospel. They behold the excellency of Christ in the gospel. God gives it. It's a gift. But there's a strange phrase in here that deserves some clarification. What is it that's meant by early years? If you have an older version of the confession, it says riper years. Well, just for the sake of time, we're not going to get in the weeds, but let me tell you what it doesn't mean. First of all, it's not referring to an age of accountability. When are those later years? Is it 11? Is it 13? Is it when you undergo confirmation as certain so-called Christian traditions? would uphold? No, what we need to be thinking about, as I said, are articles that go before. All the way back, for instance, in, the, in our chapter on effectual calling, do you remember there was one paragraph in the middle there specifically dealing with elect infants? What do elect infants not do? Well, even though they are Born in sin and brought forth in iniquity, they have not personally sinned such that there are no particular sins from which an infant dying in infancy must repent. And so what it's saying here is that though there may be exceptions to God's effectual calling, the normal way that men or women are converted is that they, by God's grace, repent or turn from the very sins that they have committed in their life. It doesn't have a particular age in mind. It's to say you've lived long enough to sin and have been brought to the knowledge of that sin, such that God in His grace now brings you to the the knowledge of your need for Christ. There's two things that we see in the Bible about repentance. Number one, we see that it's a command. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God saying, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is upon you. It's a command. But the only way that you can obey that command is if you are given it, or if it's given to you as a gift. And in this way, God provides all that He commands from us in the gospel. There's two specific places that speak about repentance as a gift from God. Look at the book of Acts, chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. The church in Jerusalem is getting word that the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles and they're being converted. And when they heard about it, they fell silent and they glorified God saying then to the Gentiles, God also has granted repentance that leads to life. God gave it to them. Second 2 Timothy 2.25. The general call goes out, repent and believe. Why do they obey? Because God grants it. 2 Timothy 2, verse 25, or rather 24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, a kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth two biblical examples of repentance being something that is not merely a command to be obeyed but a gift to be received. Within the context of effectual calling, it is the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those whom God has called. The old Reformation doctrine, the canons of Dort, describes it this way. And then the will, now renewed, is not only activated and motivated by God, but in being activated by God, is also itself active. In other words, in regeneration, our wills are activated, such that they're able to respond positively to the call of the gospel. And in being activated, they're able to act. So our wills are both activated and act. It is both a gift And an act of obedience. For this reason, it says, man himself, by that grace which he has received, is also rightly said to believe and to repent. All that God demands, God provides. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's exactly what we see here. And it's not only at conversion, but notice also there in paragraph two that it's in the Christian life. And here we're going to see two things. We're going to see on the one hand, our problem, namely sin, and then we're going to see God's provision. It says, there's no one who does good and does not sin. Even the best may fall into great sins and offenses. The best of men are men at best, it says. Though the power and the deceitfulness of the corruption in them, along with the strength of temptation, it's talking about here's our problem, that the flesh is still waging war against the spirit within us. We still have indwelling sin, that even though we have been freed from its power, the very presence of sin's corruption is still in us on this side of the resurrection. That's our problem. So how is it that we don't ultimately succumb to it? Well, God provides for us the grace of repentance. Therefore, God has mercifully provided in the covenant of grace, because all of the benefits and the graces of salvation, including faith and repentance, are located and found only in the context of that covenant, Christ being its head. God has mercifully provided in the covenant of grace that believers who sin and fall will be renewed through repentance to salvation. They will not be lost, but they will be renewed. And God is the one who provides the grace for their renewal, for their restoration. And there may be times, brothers and sisters, where it seems like there is a professing Christian who is so far gone in their sin that there seems to be no hope for them. A local church has even leaned into the very means of grace according to the authority granted to them by Christ in the expelling of an unrepentant brother from its own congregation. And yet, even that we trust will be a means of grace if they are truly among God's elect to be renewed through repentance to salvation. I want to submit that one of the reasons why so many churches are so afraid to practice church discipline, is because they don't believe this. That even this is a means whereby God brings all of his wayward children back to Christ in renewing them through repentance, causing them to endure all the way to the end. And so, we do not give up on those Who are barely holding on by a thread, that are on the edge of a precipice, because we know that if they belong to Christ, Christ will not lose them. That He's not only appointed the ends, but He's also appointed the means, and that means will be His word, even if it's the word spoken by the church that puts them out of the church to win them back. God can do it. Well, we move on to paragraph three. And here we see the grace of repentance, and it lists off a whole host of things. And we're going to see, first of all, God's work, but then secondly, we're going to see our response. God's work, it says, that this saving repentance is a gospel grace. If you have an older confession, it says it is an evangelical grace in which those who are made aware by the Holy Spirit of many evils in their sin. That's God's work. God's work is the one who opens our eyes to the reality of our sinfulness and of our need for Christ, which leads to our response. That our response is threefold. There's first of all a Christward response, that being made aware of our sin and of our need for a Redeemer, we turn by faith in Christ. And turning by faith in Christ, we are now emboldened by virtue of our righteous standing in Him to see our sin for what it really is, to call it by name, and to deal with it as it deserves. That by faith in Christ, we humble ourselves with godly sorrow for hatred of it and self-loathing. I talk to so many saints who struggle with the idea that maybe I'm not a Christian because there's this struggle within me and has been for a long time, for as long as I've been a Christian, and it hasn't gone away. This struggle in me that makes me, whereby I do what I don't want to do, and I don't want to do what I'm doing, to which I would say to them, Brother, the evidence of life in you is that there is a struggle. The evidence of life in you is that there is a hatred of that sin. You don't love it, though it may still be remaining in you. That self-loathing is not ultimately to be understood in our modern self-esteem type categories. That self-loathing is ultimately a loathing of anything in us, in our own resources, to free us from sin and its deceptive and destructive power. We have to look beyond ourselves and we have to look ultimately to God, which is why our third response is a Godward response. That by faith in Christ, we go to God, praying for pardon and strength of grace, determining and endeavoring by provisions from the Spirit to live before God in a well-pleasing way in everything. Three things that we see in this Godward response. We see, first of all, That repentance turns us from sin and now turns us to God in three ways. That turning to God is, first of all, a purposeful walk. It is something that we determine and endeavor to do. But it's not just a purposeful walk. It's also, secondly, a powerful walk. It is from the Spirit, the very same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And to what end? To live a pleasing walk. To live before God in a well-pleasing way in everything. We see our sin. We turn to Christ. We don't hope in ourselves, but rather we hate our sin so that we might turn from it. And going to God for grace, we purpose ourselves. We lean into the very power of God through the Spirit so that we might live in a way that is pleasing to Him. There's a way that we might consider this. It's kind of to use the picture of a tree. Here we've got soil. And in this soil, a seed has been planted. Now, if we're thinking about Mark 4 and other places in the Bible, remember we talked about that last time, then we know that the seed is what? It's the Word of God. And when the Word of God is sown into the kind of soil, right? What are the soils? The soils are human hearts. And it's when it's sown into human hearts that have been regenerated by God's grace through the power of the Holy Spirit, such that it receives that Word and is now able to bear fruit, well, then you get roots that begin to grow from it. Those are roots. It's not a octopus, that roots begin to go out. And those roots look like, it looks like effectual calling. It looks looks like beholding our sin for what it really is. Oh my gosh, I'm a sinner. It looks like Beholding Christ's excellency, I have in Christ a sufficient mediator. And as these truths take root in a heart that has been regenerated by the grace of God, then what begins to grow up out of it is a trunk with branches. Those are branches. And this trunk looks like a turning from sin. It looks like in these branches, because branches are really just an extension of the trunk, a turning to God, turning to God in faith. And when we do Then we bear the fruit of repentance, which looks like good works. So if we were to draw the doctrine of repentance unto life in a picture, this is what it would look like. The seed of God's word sown in a regenerate heart, whereby the roots of it grow deep, beholding our sin and beholding the excellency of a sufficient redeemer and mediator in the person of Jesus Christ. From that grows a turning from sin and a turning to God and the bearing of fruit. And as we grow, notice that our turning from sin and a turning to God only gets stronger and stronger and more stable and we're able to bear more fruit. Now, that's essentially what the confession is saying. That we have... That gospel grace in which those who are made aware of the Holy Spirit, of the many evils in their sin, then turn from the knowledge of their sin and put faith in Christ. And then having put their faith in Christ, they turn from sin with godly sorrow, hatred of it, and self-loathing. And then they pray for pardon and strength and grace, and they determine and endeavor by provisions from the Spirit, not our life, but God's life coursing through us, as we abide in Christ, which really just means to receive and rest in Christ, our sufficient Redeemer, so that we might live before God in a way that is well pleasing in everything. That's the doctrine of repentance and a life. And that leads us to our last two paragraphs the duty of repentance and the provision of repentance. That in the Christian life, we see that we are to repent continuously and we are to repent particularly. Look at this, beginning of paragraph four. Repentance must continue through our lives because of the body of death and its activities. Romans 8.13 says that in the power of the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body. Colossians 3.5 says, therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. The body of death is in us and we put it to death. That is what ongoing repentance looks like. It's not just something that we do at the beginning of the Christian life. It's something that marks the Christian life between now and the resurrection. As long as there's indwelling sin in us, we walk in a posture of active repentance, but repentance ultimately is always focused on Christ. Repentance and faith go together. They're peanut butter and jelly, best friends. But we're not only to repent continuously We're to repent particularly so that it is everyone's duty to repent of each specific known sin specifically. There are three things in repenting of known sins specifically, or if you have an older confession, particular sins particularly, that we are able to do with great boldness because of the grace of God to us in Christ. First of all, we are able to realize them. That we know them for what they are. Psalm 19.13 says this. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. That when God's grace through his word is taken root, we're able to realize them. Wow, even my... Even the sins I don't see outwardly, even those sins that are inward that nobody else can see, those presumptuous sins I know are in me. We realize them, but we don't just realize them, we also name them. And we are able to name them without having to minimize them. We can name them in all of their scandalous, embarrassing ways. In other words, you and I, because we're justified by Christ, secure in Him, are free to name our sins in such a way that it triggers our gag reflex. And it should. I sat with a brother a number of years ago who was addicted to pornography. And not unlike many other brothers who, and sisters, there's obviously a growing number of percentage of sisters who struggle with it as well. And I sat across from him, and as we had this conversation, this dear brother was... Saying, well, yeah, I looked at stuff. Well, what do you mean you looked at stuff? What did you look at? Well, you know, this, that, and the other. He was dancing around it. He wouldn't just name it. And I kept asking him question after question after question, and he couldn't do it until finally the bottom fell out, and he said exactly what he was looking at, and he just was shattered. And the power of sin was broken there was no minimization. There had to come a point where he had spent his whole life trying to treat sin as not quite as bad as it really is. And I'm assuring him, because you're justified in Christ, secure in Him, you can name it. Name it for what it is. There is no sin that you can name, and you can't name it in any way that will cause Christ to disown you. He's already died for it. Name it. And you've got to name it in what it really is, and got, you've you got to name it in a way that doesn't minimize it, but in the power of Christ you're able to do it. You can name it. Think about what the Apostle Paul did. 1 <laughs> Timothy 1.13. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. All praise be to Christ. Verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Think about how provocative that language is. He could have said, though formerly I was a sinner, though formerly I was a guy that just didn't think much about the gospel. Formerly, I was a guy that didn't like Christians very much. As long as we deal with our sins generally and generically and not particularly, those sins will continue to have power over us until we name them in the power of Christ. We, we can do it because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus. And in naming them, we are able to turn from them. Remember Zacchaeus? He is confronted with the reality of his own unjust life, of the fact that he had embezzled money and stolen money, that he had taken advantage of the poor. Realizing it, naming it, he turns from it, and he pays out many times over what he stole. That we not only repent continuously, but we repent particularly. And before we go on to the last paragraph, I do want to note one more thing. There is that last phrase, known sins specifically or particular sins particularly. And I think there's an important implication to chase from here, some further considerations. Number one, you and I must not repent from particular sins which are not in fact sin. Feel like a whole lot of my time in my own life, in my own home, but especially as a pastor, is to prevent members of our church from binding one another to what God doesn't bind us to, and actually just binding one another to what God does bind us to. The only things from which you, are, you and I are to repent and to turn from as sin are those things that God defines as sin. So far be it from us to ever demand repentance from anybody else to turn from something that God has never demanded them to turn from. You and I can only repent from particular sins which are in fact sin, and we cannot repent from particular sins which are not sin, which means that we need to be able to name sin according to God's word. Secondly, we cannot, and I would even say for the sake of rightly giving witness to the gospel, we must not repent from sins which we did not particularly commit, either voluntarily or involuntarily. So while I think there's a whole host of political things that are prudential, this is one area in the recent conversations over matters pertaining to reparations whether or not entire people groups should have to pay reparations for the pattern or so on and so forth. Or the demanding of repentance for something that is intrinsic to you, be it whiteness or otherwise. We cannot and we must not repent from sins that we did not particularly commit. We repent from particular sins particularly. So when people come to us and we say, well, I... you hurt me in this way, or you did this, that, or the other. And you say, well, did I sin against you? And they say, yeah, I think you did. You say, well, brother, I sure hope not. And if I did, I certainly want to know, would you be willing to open up God's word with me and show me in the Bible what what I've done, what sins I've committed that I might be able to turn from them and make things right? But, But if we cannot establish particular sins particularly from God's word, then we are going to be living in a constant tyranny of repenting from sins that we cannot repent of. And that's slavery. Though I doubt the confession had our modern situation in mind, this is a temptation as old as time. So just a couple of things to consider. Finally, the last paragraph the provision of repentance. We see God's purpose, God's assurance, and God's means. What is God's purpose in providing repentance? It's first of all that to preserve His saints. God has made full provision through Christ in the covenant of grace to preserve believers in their salvation. God's purpose is preservation. We're going to make it all the way home. He gives us the grace of, repenting, of repentance and the grace to keep repenting to put to death the deeds of the body, to put to death what is earthly in us so that we might persevere in this life. But secondly, he gives us the grace of repentance, provides it to us for our assurance, specifically our assurance of pardon. Thus, although there is no sin so small that is undeserving of damnation, because even the smallest sin is a sin against an all holy God, an infinite God, and thus deserving of eternal condemnation, Notice the second half. Yet there is no sin so great that it will bring damnation on those who repent. There is no sin so great from which, by God's grace, you cannot turn from that sin and be saved. God's grace is greater than our greatest sins. Finally, God's means is the preaching of the word, the ministry of the word. This is why. The constant preaching of repentance is necessary, which means that when you come in here and you walk away from our services, you go, man, Pastor Jeff just sure seems to talk about sin a lot. A, I hope that that's not without talking about the gospel a lot and about Christ a lot, even more so. But it's to say that one of the means of grace whereby God helps us to continually, continuously repent and persevere in this life and grow in our assurance of salvation in Christ, the means is a constant preaching of repentance necessary. So let me just tell you, as long as there is indwelling sin in you and there is indwelling sin in me, There will be calls in the preaching of this church, not just for non-Christians, but Christians, to turn from the deceptive and the destructive power of sin and to rest in Christ, just as we've received Him by faith, over and over and over, that every single member of our church would get home safely to Jesus. That's the aim. It makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. Not optional. Necessary.